This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 442. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. mcclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get a free class, 10 Miss American History. When you do enroll, you can purchase one of my courses there. That keeps this podcast free of charge. You can also click on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can get a book plate if you want my autograph on one of my books. Of course, you can purchase one of my books. I've got seven of those. A new one coming out probably within a month. I've got a new class at McClanahan Academy coming out probably within a little over a month. A lot of good stuff coming up. You're going to want to be involved in all of that. You can also... Uh, click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And, of course, you can go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Another great educational website. All those things help support the show. But, of course, getting people to listen to the show is key. So rate this podcast where you get your podcast. Share it around on social media. Let people know you're listening to it. That's how we grow the audience organically. Word of mouth is the best way to do it. And you become long-term listeners. So that's great. All right. Let's talk about this particular topic. And this is kind of wrapping up a week where I've gotten into some things. You know, myths, realities, lies, deceit, half-truths. And I want to focus on this piece that came out in Newsweek uh, just a couple of days ago by uh, Jad Jelani. And the title is, Anti-Racist Messaging is Failing with Voters, So Why Can't Liberals Quit It? So if this Black Lives Matter anti-racist messaging, if all this stuff is not working, the voters just don't, they're not receptive to it, why aren't, why isn't the left stopping? If people don't really like this stuff, if the message does not work, why do they continue? And I'm going to get into that piggybacking on the three pieces I had this week, and this is not just with the left. It's just a certain subgroup, and Jelani gets into that. Now, Jad Jelani is a progressive. I mean, he's certainly interested in this agenda, but he's saying this isn't working. It's not working with voters. So we got to think about politics. If we want to get this agenda through, we got to stop talking like this. But the problem is, it does work with a certain group of people. And these people have money. And these people don't want to be called names. And I'll get into that in a minute. If you spend any time at all listening to progressive messaging lately, you've probably heard countless invocations of race and racism. Democratic elected officials have taken to framing virtually any policy goal they want through the lens of anti-racism. 
Anything they want. It's about stopping racism. It's about helping these people, this people, whatever it is. It's about that. You think about that. That's what we see every single day now. We're against Confederate statues because they're racist. Uh, we're against uh, this particular thing because they're racist. And so we got to take these things out because they're racist. Well, who are they really appealing to here? They're appealing to mo- people with money. <laughs> because, And this is where, when Michael Anton says, well, why is it paleoconservatives can't uh, seem to get all these funds that all of us Keller monitors are getting? Well, because you're appealing, you're appealing to the very leftist sentiment of America, the white Americans who want this. They're going to donate to you because they don't want to feel these bad things. It's guilt. And the picture on this is beautiful. System is guilty. It's guilt. It's the fear of guilt and being called something when you're really not. That's the hardest part of this. To have a mature adult conversations doesn't mean that you're any of these things. You're not pro-slavery. You're not pro-racism. You're not any of that. But you're just having a conversation. Well, what about these things? I mean, how, and, and I think this is a mature article by Jad Jelani saying this doesn't work. Why are we still doing it? It doesn't, it doesn't work. New York Democratic Representative Jamil Bobman, for instance, sternly warned us that standardized testing is a pillar of systemic racism. Advocates for student debt relief, like the ACLU, want us to know that student debt is a racial justice issue. Climate activists, who historically have talked about the issues in universal terms, have increasingly described their movement through anti-racist language, arguing that it benefits minorities most to battle climate change. The logic behind this radicalization of every debate is fairly straightforward. America is an increasingly diverse place, and one where increasing numbers of people care deeply about racism and equal opportunity. So why not frame every issue through the lens of racial justice, he says. What can be the harm in talking about how every universal policy especially benefits African Americans or Latinos? I mean, certainly you can see the calculation here. Well, if we've got, if America is no longer dominated, white dominated, which I think it's by 2030, within the decade, white Americans as a group are going to be a minority. Well, why not talk about things as anti-racism? He says, that's the question that Yale University researchers Josh Kala and Micah English recently explored in a working paper that tested various types of messaging to promote progressive policies. Political scientists have really been doing this type of research for decades, and they've always shown that associating these policies with racial minorities makes people less likely to support them. So if you say that climate change is about race, well, people aren't going to support it. It's not because they're racist, and they point this out. English told me in an interview, but given the shift in racial attitudes in the past few years, we thought that maybe the story would be different this time around, but it wasn't. English and Kahlo took six different policies, increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour, forgiving $50,000 in student loan debt, the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, upzoning up housing, and decriminalizing marijuana and erasing prior convictions, and then asked people if they supported them. But they framed the issues differently to see which rationale was most compelling. To one group, they explicitly emphasize that the policy will benefit a specific racial group or promote racial equality, the race frame. To another, they spoke about how a policy would promote economic justice or benefit a specific class group, the class frame. For a third group, they used both the race and class frame. And for a final group, they used a neutral frame that explained the policy but made no mention of race or class. So you've got one that's all race, one that's all class, one that's both race and class, and one with nothing. Hey, look, we're going to have the Green New Deal because uh, we think this. 
uh, will create jobs, and this is going to uh, help the environment, and this is going to do... So you frame it in a way that takes all of the cancel culture, all the culture war stuff out of it. It just becomes anti-culture war. What they found was interesting. What they found is that the class frame was generally more effective than either the race frame or the race plus class frame. The fight observed increases in support for racial justice and Democrat elites' use of race and class plus frame, frames in the public messaging. We find no evidence that Americans are persuaded by these policy frames. So there's been a slight increase, but Americans are not persuaded by a race or race and class. But class, this is blue collar, white collar. This is the elites against everybody else. Kind of a populist message. Yeah? That tends to resonate left and right. Think about Trump capitalizing on that. I'm going to keep jobs in America. Joe Biden, I'm going to do this. So the jobs area is always one that works. So what he's saying is we should just focus on jobs. After this summer, everyone to believe that you know we had this great awakening, that everyone is now aware of racial equity and we need to fix it. But I think our results suggest kind of the opposite. Part of the reason for this is likely because many voters don't want to support policies they perceive as benefiting some group other than themselves. So this isn't going to benefit me. Why would I support a policy that just benefits them? As I reported in 2019, research has shown that implicit associations between racial groups and wealth can predict opposition towards helping the poor. If white people stereotype African Americans as poor, they will be more likely to oppose welfare spending because they will see it as benefiting African Americans over themselves. In other words, it helps to tell voters what's in it for them if you want them to support any particular policy. Well, is not that the key of voting? It's all about power. What's in it for me? If I vote for this policy, if I say I want to cancel student loan debt, well, how does that help me? So I'm going to vote for it if I think it's going to help me, or I'm not going to vote for it if I think it doesn't. There are very few voters who are highbrow. They're just going to do something because they think it's good or right or wrong, and it doesn't help them, or it might even hurt them. There's very few people that vote that way. Most people are self-interested. I'm going to vote for lower taxes because that helps me. I'm going to vote for a government stimulus check because that helps me. I'm going to vote for this particular policy because I can get a job or keep my job. I'm going to vote for this because it does this for me or this puts cash in my pocket. I'm going to vote for this policy because I'm in a contracting business and you know what the Green New Deal means? I can go out and make lots of money. You follow the cash. What's in it for them? This is the whole key to understanding voting in politics. It always has been and always will be. And I think that's what this particular study is pointing out. But that's not the whole story here. It's just that some white voters were turned off by... It, just, it wasn't just that some white voters were turned off by race-oriented messaging. For African Americans... The only minority group surveyed in high enough numbers to draw a conclusion. The race frame seemed to have no advantage over the class frame. So you could read this at the initial and say, well, yes, yeah, because of systemic racism. These white people don't want black people getting stuff. But wait a second. Jelani is saying, uh-uh. African-Americans didn't even bite on the race issue. Some did, of course, but most didn't. It had no advantage over the issue of, well, we need jobs. This is why Trump, this is interesting, this is why Trump was able to gain more votes in the African-American community than any Republican at any point in, in decades because he focused on jobs. 
He focused on working class people, people that just want to go out and have security, economic security, individual security. They wanted to have they wanted to feel like their life mattered in some way. It had value. And work brings value. Work brings value. This is why people need to work. There's something to it. Something really important that we found is that the race appeal and the class appeal are about as effective for black voters, English told me, speculating that these voters tend to be more pragmatic in their political approach. Interestingly, English and Kala did find one group that was slightly receptive to the race framing, but it might not be the one you, why you expect. It was white Democrats. Now, I would say this is white progressives in general on both sides of the spectrum. Now, not in the way that you would, because you take someone like Anton, who wants to run around saying, well, we got to say the founders were anti-racist. You see, the race card matters for them in a different way. They have to show, they have to bleed on the ground saying we're not racist because they think the left is going to frame them all as racist. Well, you know what? They're going to call you that anyways. doesn't matter if you say you're not or you are. I mean, doesn't matter if you show you're not over and over. And they're still going to call you that. It's just stupid. It's an emotional argument that has no intellectual backing to it whatsoever. But what, what Jelani is showing here is it's really not that effective. It might get somebody canceled. It might have some impact like that. It might do something along those lines. But it's not very effective otherwise. It doesn't lead to more votes. It doesn't lead to, to political success. It doesn't lead to anything. But white Democrats just snap it up and they spend money. They donate because they want to make themselves feel better. You see, it's all about how you feel. Well, I don't want to be called these names, so I'm going to donate to this group because they say they're against these things. So they give them money. This is where you have the people, the leader of you know, the Black Lives Matter group who has all these houses and all this economic, all this wealth from that organization. Well, I mean, because people are donating money in large numbers. The SPLC, some of these groups, this is what they do. They capitalize on this because they capitalize on this very thing that, that Jelani's pointing out here. It makes money. It's, it is a tremendous economic boon for people to get into this industry. It's an industry. It's worth wondering why progressives, particularly white progressives, have become so fixated on racial messaging if there's so little evidence that it actually works to persuade voters to support their policies. Political parties spend mountains of money on survey and focus group work. English and Kahlo's paper may be the latest showing how ineffective racial messaging can be, but it certainly isn't the first bit of research to demonstrate that finding. So then Jelani says this, My guess is that progressive, the progressive movement is simply captured by an upper-class elite for whom anti-racism is now the, an all-dominating philosophy. Bingo. It's about cash and making them feel better. That's what it comes down to. Sure, it may not persuade your average voter, white or black or anyone else, to support your political party to frame every message in terms of race, but it probably does impress your social cohort and it gets you some dollars. There's a reason elite prep schools are now embracing critical race theory while 
most working-class communities and public schools would find some of its tenants esoteric and unrelatable. Yeah, it's white elites on both sides. The establishment class. And what this latest study shows is that this elite cohort that runs everything from the major news media to the universities and America's political parties is deeply out of touch, not only with average Americans, but perhaps its own political interests. Self-defeating messaging is self-defeating. Even it makes you feel good and impresses people who already agree with you. I love this piece. I want to say to to uh, to Jamil, uh, I'm sorry, Jelani, excuse me, G. Jelani, thank you for writing this. I mean, thank you for being honest about some things here. There's common ground here at times. People know they're honest and just say, hey, this is what's going on. This is a mature piece. It's not Atlantic. It's not MSNBC, even though it's... Newsweek. But I mean, this is an honest, mature piece that you could find common ground with somebody. What are some common ground things? We want jobs. We want security. We want these things. So let's have that common ground. Where could that work best? How could we work best with these things? There was a time when progressives were not so enthralled by the whims of one social class. They aspired to talk like ordinary people and persuade the vast majority, not the elites who run our universities and corporate HR departments. (laughs) This is so anti-elite. It's so good. I love it. It's so good. Take, for instance, the civil rights leader Jesse Jackson. Having grown up poor and cut his teeth in the civil rights movement, Jackson had always thought hard about building diverse coalitions and persuading the largest number of people possible to support his positions. Messaging he used during his 1988 bid for the Democratic nomination for the presidency. Still sits with me. Most poor people aren't lazy. They're not black. They're not brown. They're not mostly white and female and young. Or he said they are mostly white, female, and young. He said during his speech at the Democratic convention, but whether white, black, or brown, a hungry baby's belly turned inside out is the same color. Color it pain. Color it hurt. Color it agony. This is something that it's interesting because if you go back, this is very Jeffersonian in a lot of ways. I mean, think about how Jeffersonian this actually is. What they're not Jeffersonians weren't progressives; they were populists in a way. It wasn't progressive, but I mean, this is very Jeffers. This piece is very Jeffersonian. Think about Jefferson's opposition to corporate welfare, to banks. Think about the populists in the late 19th century who were not progressives in the modern sense, but who understood that the fusion of banking and government was a real problem in America and needed to be eradicated. That was the real issue. The populists who tried to forge broad coalitions of people, and then, of course, race got involved, and there were some other issues there that, that derailed some of this, particularly in the South. But this is the issue, Right? Rather than argue for the interests of one racial group or another, Jackson was preaching solidarity. He was telling the audience that people of all skin colors should care about hunger, not just because they should care about their fellow man, but because they too could be one of those hungry people one day. It's that kind of messaging that progressives should use to pass their policy. So he's a progressive. He wants these things. I, I also put that in with federalism. How could a decentralist message work with this? How could someone say this could be a good message and we could work with the state's federation? We could have this better here and better here and better here. We could work in local communities. 
We could do these things if you want, if you're a progressive. If you're not a progressive and you think these are bad policies, well, then you could do that too. But that's the beauty of the Federation. It's the beauty of the Federal Republic that the founders created. That's why I always preach think locally, act locally. Because a lot of these things could be handled as you're talking to your neighbors. Hey, you know, this is a, this is a good issue for us. It doesn't matter about white, black, anything else. It just matters about what's good for our community. What, what's good for these people? What's good for these? I mean, it's not about groups. It's about us. What's good for us? What, what he's actually identifying here in his own way, but he's trying to look at it from a one-size-fits-all position, I would say you need to argue this at local. He's saying we need, we need to have a one-size-fits-all common effort to say these policies are good for everybody. Well, we know that's not going to work because we know not everybody is going to benefit from this or that or the other. That's, that's simple economics. There are winners and losers in politics. But what you could have is a general belief that maybe at the local level, this particular thing might help us. We could have a general anti-elitism. I mean, he's, he's saying the elites are the real problem in American politics, left and right. Because people like Michael Anton, who's saying he's not an elite, but he's running this, I mean, he's, he's in the political class. You know, Alan Gelzo, who was certainly teaching at a, a university, is an elite. They're concerned about these things. Why? Because they're around it all the time. And the people that they're around are the children of elites. They're in society with elites. And this is what elites worry about, because elites don't have anything else to do. They, they're not going out and trying to figure out how they're going to put food on their table oftentimes. It's not, it's not a real concern for them. But it is for most Americans. And this is why, you know, we have these kind of discussions. Most Americans, as Trump tapped into, this is the populist kind of surge on some things. This is why it matters for a lot of people. And why I think this article is really interesting, coming from a progressive. Because you have this certain interest in something bigger than just the culture war. We know the culture war is real. We know that there's all that going on. But again, you could handle the culture war in a much more decentralized way as well. And I think that's something that we need to think about too. What might work for California may not work for Alabama and vice versa. We know that's the case. Or New York or uh, Montana. These are things that we need to think about. But these areas dominated by elites, you see it. We're governing the United States right now between California and New York. It's the way it always is. Kamala Harris from California. We're governing for California. But California is not the rest of the United States. And people live in their own world. They think, well, this is California. This is what the rest of America is like. But they, they don't even know what the rest of America is like. They've never even been there before. They don't know. They don't feel it. They don't see it. They don't have these, this perspective. So I did a lot of long episodes this week. This episode is in the 20-minute range. I did three 40-minute episodes this week, kind of you know, double content in some ways. Um, so this one's a little shorter. But it was nice wrap-up for what we're talking about with the other three pieces. We've got the elites on both sides telling myths, their own myths, their own lies, the neoconservatives, the left. I talked about Eugene Genovese this week. This is the real problem with America, and we don't have mature, honest conversations, and you've got a lot of du duplicity going on, a lot of lying, a lot of myth-making, and that creates a very volatile situation. And this really is, I mean, when you think about it, how important history is. Who knew that being a historian would be so powerful in the 21st century? But that's what it's come down to, our shared myths and what those myths actually mean. 
uh, that tradition of things. What is that tradition at all? Does it exist or what is the tradition? I mean, that's something that the neoconservatives and paleoconservatives are fighting over. What is that tradition? What does that mean? Where do we go from here? Who, who is the father of that tradition? All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClain Show. I'll see you next time for the next one. See you then.